Um, as you may know, we have been going through the Gospel of John for the last several months, and this week we find ourselves in John chapter 11. So I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 11. Now, uh, we have 44 verses to get through this morning, so I'm going to jump around a little bit, even in our reading, uh, to make things go a little bit faster, and then we will reference those a little later in the sermon. But I want to invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word as a sign of honor as we come this morning. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake... I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also, that we may die with him. Jump down to verse 19 and 20, or verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When he had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, 
Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, we ask that you would give us eyes to see. Father, we pray that we would see the beauty, the glory, the splendor of who Jesus really, really is. And Lord, we would be changed. And so, Lord, for this we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've always hated waiting. And the only thing worse than waiting is waiting in a waiting room. Because it's all of the the bad parts about waiting, but then it adds to it uncomfortable seating, sterile environments, strange, awkward people, and to add to that, uh, a little bit of day-old coffee. You see, it's uncomfortable. At moments, it's confusing, and sometimes it's just downright painful. And depending on what type of waiting room you find yourself in, you experience everything from boredom to fear, frustration to confusion, anxiety to anger. And what makes things worse is the nagging sense that there is no point. Life can feel that way, can it? We all have these seasons in which we are waiting on something, waiting for the perfect relationship, waiting on an answer, waiting on a miracle. I call these the waiting rooms. See, waiting rooms are those moments in life when the waiting is uncomfortable, confusing, and at times painful. They are the times when we want God to come through, but he seems nowhere to be found. And we too can begin to ask the question, is there a point? And we find the answer to that question in our passage this morning. As we look at a family who found themselves in their own unexpected and undesired waiting room. Now we pick up this morning in John chapter 11. If you recall John chapter 10, Jesus is teaching on the good shepherd, that he was their good shepherd, and that ultimately led to a confrontation with the religious leaders in which they attempted to arrest him and ultimately stone him. And so Jesus escapes and runs some 20 miles away to the city of Batania across the Jordan River. And we begin this section in which he takes a hiatus from his public ministry to focus on those closest to him, to prepare them for what's to come. And so we pick up the story as word comes to Jesus that the friend he loves is sick. Now in verse 3, we read that how they tell Jesus about this reality is in this way. We read, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, for anyone who knows much about John, we know he's often referred to as the apostle of love. That love is a recurring theme throughout all of his writings and is no different in our passage this morning. That love sets the tone. In fact, three times in this passage, he will use the word love, two different Greek terms but the same basic concept. And the two words being used here are phileo and agape. Now, phileo love is a brotherly love. It's a friendly love. And it is used by all the people around Jesus to describe his love for Lazarus and his sisters. You see, when John the author speaks of Jesus' love, he uses the term agape. Now, agape is practically a new word invented by Christians to describe the divine, unconditional love of God for us that seeks our ultimate good. And you see, this love sets the stage for both the problem in this passage and also the purpose. First, let's look at the problem. 
Now in verse 5 we read, Now Jesus loved, agaped, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So what did he do? He waited. Now, if you were to finish that statement, because God loved them, so, or therefore, how would you finish it? Well, I think for most of us, we would finish it in this way, so he rushed to their aid. Or so he did like he did for the Syrophoenician's daughter. He would just say a word, and all of a sudden, everything would be made right. But Jesus does neither. Now, if I'm in an emergency, and I call you up, and you go, yeah, 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 and then you proceed to watch like all 20 seasons of Law and Order, um, I'm going to be a little offended. I'm going to be a little angry. Why did you not respond? And so there is a question that is stirring because of this reality. Because Jesus agaped them, he waited. You see, he had healed a myriad of perfect strangers. But now one of his own, now one that he loved is hurting and on his deathbed, and Jesus seemingly does nothing. It doesn't make sense. You see, we all face moments in life where God doesn't seem to make any sense. You see, it's an age-old problem. If there is a good, loving, all-knowing, and all-powerful God, why do bad things happen? And even for the maturest of Christians, there can be this sense when we have been praying and waiting for so long, answered only by the silence, we too begin to struggle. We don't get it. And apparently neither did they. They didn't even understand what exactly was going on in the situation, let alone the overarching purpose of it. Notice what he says in verse 11. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I go to awaken him. Disciples respond, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. It's one of those moments. Guys, he's dead. You see, we can give them the benefit of the doubt in this, that Jesus does have his moments where he's a little bit cryptic, right? You know, these are those Yoda moments where it's like, what exactly is he saying? Well, then when this moment, they took him literally when he was meaning it figuratively. That sleep was a reference to death, that he was already gone. And this shows us his divine prerogative, that he knows all things. Despite the distance, despite not having a messenger, he knows already that Lazarus is dead. And so he says to them, I'm glad this is so. Now, why in the world would he say that? Why would he say he's glad that this happened? Because they would believe. You see, he's showing the root of the problem and moving to the source of his motivation. Brings to the second point, the purpose. Rooted in love and purpose for glory. Remember, what does agape mean? Agape is this unconditional love that is committed to someone's ultimate good. And therein lies the motivation for why Jesus is doing everything that he's doing in this passage. You see, he wasn't ultimately concerned with what they wanted. He was concerned in what they needed. And what did they need? They needed revelation. Revelation of what, you may ask? And the answer is glory. Look what he says in verse 4. This illness does not lead to death, It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, I've been around church people for a long time, in fact, my entire life. 
And the word glory is thrown around a lot, and I'm convinced half the people don't know what it means. You see, glory of God is the Greek word here, doxa, a translation of kavod. It speaks of the splendor, the beauty, the radiance, the weightiness, and the fame of God. And so Jesus wants to communicate to them the greater radiance and splendor of himself. And you may ask, why is that important? What is the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. Revelation is for transformation. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What is he saying? The more you and I see the splendor and the beauty of Jesus, and that begins to trickle down into the recesses of our heart, the more we become like that image. That when the beauty of this light penetrates to the deepest parts of your heart, it's like when the energy from the sun penetrates into the battery of a solar lamp, enabling it to shine just like the greater light shined upon them. You see, he won't let you stay where you are. He wants to move you. He wants to take you further and deeper than you have ever gone before. So he will reveal things to you that you never would have seen had it not been for the waiting room. That's why in verse 15, Jesus says, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. You see, it was one thing for Jesus to heal. It was another thing for him to resurrect. Now, to this point, we begin to understand the significance of the timing of these events. You see, there was an old rabbinical tradition that suggested that for three days after someone had died, that the soul hovered around the body, looking for a way back in. But on the fourth day, it was game over. Why? Because at that point, the body would begin to decompose, especially in an arid climate like in Israel. And so the reason Jesus waits two days is to make sure he shows up on the fourth It would be the day that there was no hope of going back. No one in their wildest imagination would think in this moment Jesus would be capable of anything less than just standing there and weeping. You see, Jesus waits because he wants to reveal a greater depth of who he is and what he is capable of. You see, every other resurrection that Jesus performed, he did on the same day. Some could suggest that he was merely the resuscitator of the dead. But Jesus wanted to make sure that everyone clearly understood he wasn't merely in the resuscitation business. He was in the resurrection business. You see, he wanted to reveal them further who he really was. You see, they knew him as the miracle worker. Jesus wanted to show them he was the resurrection of life. They knew him as possessing great power. Jesus wanted to show them that he possessed all power. They knew his love in part, But Jesus wanted to show them his love in full. He wasn't just a friend of sinners. He was the lover of their souls. So Jesus made his way to Bethany. And as he comes near, word gets back to Mary and Martha in the house that Jesus is coming. Now, if you know anything about these two women, you understand they are two incredible and incredibly different women, right? You can read about their story in Luke chapter 10. Martha is an above-the-line type of woman. She is a thinker and a doer. 
She is the uh, hostess with the mostess. That, that she is probably like a one wing two on the Enneagram. I mean, she gets things done and she does them right. And Jesus responds to her in kind. Mary, on the other hand, she's a below-the-line type of woman. She's the feeler and the lover. She is the one who is always coming after Jesus. And you will see again in this passage, he treats her in kind. You see, the beauty and wonder how God relates to us is he doesn't relate to us as if we're on a conveyor belt. Treating each and every person exactly the same way. No, he tailor makes his responses to minister to us, to who we are and what we actually need. We see that in the case, that in the story, both women, when they finally see Jesus, what do they say? They say, in essence, the same exact thing. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, it's the same statement, but I would argue it has subtly different meanings. Much like if I said to you this morning that, um, that, that you're looking great this morning. Or I said, you're looking great this morning. All right, same words, right? Different meanings. You see, there's a subtly different meaning in both. Both are struggling with grief, and both are struggling with a bit of anger. But they're subtly different in their approaches. You see, when word gets back to the house, Martha makes her way to Jesus. And she says those words. And I would argue her meaning is something akin to this. Jesus, I know if you would have been here, you could have done something. But even though I don't know why you waited, I still believe. You see, she is bringing to Jesus her grief, her confusion, and a little bit of anger but combining that with her sincere faith. Now, her faith was sincere, but it was imperfect. And so Jesus responds to her according to her personality and to her need in the moment, and what does he do? He has a theological conversation with her. Martha, you know your brother will rise again. Yes, Lord, I know he will rise again on the last day. You see, she is moving her heart to consider the future hope. But Jesus wants her to understand that the future hope of the resurrection is also a present reality. Why? Because he was the resurrection of life. He was the source of all life, the sustainer of all life, the perfecter of all life, and he would be the resurrector of all life. That is who he was. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. He says, in essence, that when they came to Jesus, they saw something that they actually needed. You see, when you were sick, you want a doctor and not a medical book or a formula. When you are being sued, you want a lawyer and not a law book. Likewise, when you face your last enemy death, you want the Savior and not a doctrine written in a book. In Jesus Christ, every doctrine is made personal. That he is showing her the, the personal nature of her hope. It is him. And so he says to her that those who believe in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she goes, yes, Lord. I know you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God sent into the world. You see, her issue, her need, 
was she needed some more information. She had a sincere faith, but it was not a perfect faith. She didn't see the whole picture. And so Jesus brings, as Tim Keller puts it, a ministry of truth to her life. You see, there are moments when you and I are going through things, moments in which we are suffering, when we need greater light, we need greater words to help us along the way. That is what she needed, and that is what Jesus gave to her. But that's not always what we need. Sometimes we need something else. We see that here in the story of Mary. Now, I want you to notice the difference between these women. When Martha hears Jesus on her way, what does she do? She immediately goes and goes after Jesus. But what does Mary do? She stays. Why would she stay? I mean, this was the woman who was trying to be around Jesus anytime she could. This is the woman who was neglecting helping her sister because she wanted to sit at Jesus' feet. Why in this moment does she not run to Jesus? Well, if you've been ever angry at someone you love, you know exactly what she's feeling. I don't want to see him. I don't want to talk to him right now. She deeply feels and she deeply loves. And she is hurt and she is angry. Now, how does Jesus deal with angry people? You see, in in most of our circles, especially in Christian circles, being angry is not a welcome reality, is it? You can't be angry at God. You can't be angry at your circumstances. You just grin and bear it and move on. And no one wants to be around angry people, let alone God himself, right? But notice what Jesus does. Though she puts up this wall of distance between her and him, he seeks to tear it down. And he sends Martha to Mary saying, the rabbi is calling you. You see, he engages her. Why? Because he wants relationship with her. You see, for many of us, we may go through hardships in our life. We may find ourselves in the waiting rooms of life. And what we do is we try to deny what we're really feeling in the moment. We act as if everything is okay. We act as if we're not really upset with God for how things are going in our lives. And you see, what happens in that moment when we deny that reality is we put a wall between us and him. You see, Jesus will have none of that. He wants to tear down that wall and invite you, like he invited Mary, to bring all of your emotions, all of your anger, all of your confusion, all of your questions, and to bring them to me. Because that is where real intimacy with God is found. One of my favorite podcasts is by a pastor counselor by the name of Adam Young. It's called The Place We Find Ourselves. And in one of the episodes, he talks about the story of Job. And if you've ever been familiar with that story, you know, in essence, Satan comes to God and says to him, you're worthless. The only reason anyone ever wants to have anything to do with you is because you give them what they want. You give them good things. Now, just take those things away and we'll see what really is your worth. And so God says to him, have you considered my servant Job? And so Job is entered into a season in which everything is ripped away. 
So much so that what does his wife do? She says to him, curse God and die. Be done with him. Give him a piece of your mind and just get this whole horrific life over with. But what does Job do? He wants an audience with God. Now remember, he's disoriented because of his pain. And, and God does check him at some point, reminding him of who's actually in charge of the universe. Thank you very much. But don't miss that by his moving toward God in the seeking of an audience, he is saying, despite all that has been ripped away, despite all of my anger, despite all of my heart hurt, you are still worth it. I want you. You see, Jesus loves angry, confused people. And some of you may be in a season in which you feel just that. You're hurt, you're confused, you're angry, and you do not know what to do with it. You've put up a wall between you and God, acting as if everything's all right, putting space between you and him. And do you see how Jesus is responding to you in this moment? He is calling your name, inviting you to bring all that you're experiencing to him. Now, when Mary hears that, what does she do? She runs to Jesus, and those same words fly out of her mouth that he says, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And she falls to her face at the feet of Jesus. Now, whenever we encounter Mary in the Gospels, guess where she's at? She's at Jesus' feet. And we ask the question, how will Jesus respond now? Will he scold her? Will he be upset with her? Will he likewise give her a theological treatise? What does he do? He joins her. What was she feeling? She was feeling stirred, she was feeling angry, and she was feeling grief. What does Jesus do? He goes to all of those places. He goes to where she is at and brings her what she actually needs. I mean, there are moments in life when you don't need a theological treatise. You need someone to sit alongside you, put their arm around you, and weep with you. Isn't it interesting that Paul tells us that we are to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn, that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. Why? Because that's how God responds to us. That in the midst of our pain, he joins us, puts his arms around us, and enters into those places with us. You see, this shows us the wonder of the full humanity of Jesus. And he is willing to come with us and to go with us wherever we are. You see, when you enter into the span of emotions to someone's hurting, you're exemplifying the selfless resolve to love people right where they are. You see, this shows us about two things. It shows us about our anger and it shows us things about his tears. In regards to his anger, he says, anger does not repulse me, it compels me. In regards to his tears, 
it shows us the appropriate way to deal with grief. You see, as American Christians, we have about a 48-hour window in which we can truly grieve, right? You got time to meet with the family, have a service, and then on Monday morning, it's back to business as usual. And one of the things I've noticed over this past year especially has been this kind of blatant disregard of human life among followers of Jesus, acting as if death is no big deal. I've even seen believers try to hide the fact of their grief when someone they loved who loves Jesus dies, acting as if this is the greatest thing ever. Now, indeed, to die is gain, right? But, but how does Jesus show us how to respond to death? Notice, what is he about to do? In just a few moments, this man who is dead, who everyone is grieving, he is about to raise again from the dead. You would think he'd come in being like, hey, guys, no big deal. I got this. Don't cry. I'm here. It's going to be all right. But that is not how Jesus responds. How he does respond is he weeps. You see, when we read that he's greatly disturbed, we read that he is actually greatly angered. At the very least, this is an anger and a pain as he looks to the devastating consequences of sin. That because of sin, it brought death and separation. It ripped apart people from whom they loved. It brought this ripping apart even to our very bodies and souls. He understands all too well the great enemy of death, and he hates it. And he mourns and grieves for the loss and the hurt of someone he loves so deeply. You see, he too can grieve and weep even with hope. And some of you have experienced real grief like this. And you've experienced the pain when others try to make you feel as if you should be okay within the span of a week. That's not how grief really works. In Jesus' day, they would grieve at least for a week, and their grief would seem a little uh, unusual by our standards today. During those three days that they would weep and often surround the tomb, hoping to be near the individual, but on the fourth day, they would begin to lament. They would wail. And in fact, they would pay individuals to come and to join them in their wailing. In other words, they want to put it all out. They want to expend all of their emotions, all of their grief, all of their feelings so that they can begin the process of healing. You see, Jesus helps us to understand how we are to respond to the reality of death. How we grieve, we feel deeply, but we do so with the hope, knowing what Jesus would do. That he would rise again, and that we would rise again. Now, Jesus then begins to move toward the tomb. And as he gets there, he says, remove the stone. Now, Martha's like, Jesus, you do not want to do that. It's the fourth day, bro. He's going to stink. This kind of shows us that no one expected what Jesus was about to do next. 
As growing as Martha's faith was, she was not prepared for what Jesus could do in a situation like this. They knew he could heal. They knew he could prevent death. They even knew that if he showed up immediately afterwards, he might be able to resuscitate them and resurrect them from death. But never in their wildest imaginations could they anticipate what Jesus was about to do. And so Jesus says, did I not tell you if you believed you would experience the glory of God? Roll away that stone. And so they begin to roll away the stone. And Jesus begins to pray. Father, I thank you that you hear me. And he begins to say that I am speaking this not for my sake, but for their sake. So that they would know undeniably, in essence, what actually is going on in this moment. And then he says those famous words. Lazarus, come forth. Now, I love what many commentators have said before, that if Jesus did not specify Lazarus by name, it would have been like opening morning of Black Friday sales at Walmart pre-pandemic, and that everything would be rushing out. But he called him by name. And you imagine the buildup of anticipation. As out of the darkness, they begin to see movement. And this man very awkwardly begins to hop out of the tomb because he was wrapped in death close. People related. Could you imagine what it felt like in that morning when all hope had been dashed and all of a sudden Jesus shows up and the unthinkable happens and the one you and he love jumps out of the tomb, it would have been a celebration like no other. People would have been bewondered. They would have been dazzled in that moment. Wow, what did we just experience? But in that moment, if this was a movie, the camera would then focus in upon Jesus' face. And that smile would move to become deathly serious. Why? Because he knows this miracle has a price. Remember earlier, when Jesus tells them that they're going to go to Bethany, what did the disciples say? Why would you go there, Jesus? Don't you remember? They're trying to kill you. When Jesus is resolute that he's not turning back, what does the one who is known by his doubt Thomas, in particular, what does he say? Let us go that we may die with him. See, merely going to this region was understood to be a death sentence. And when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he knows this will be a catalyst for his own death as well. That this will begin to put everything in motion. And that's why the anger and the emotions he feels are not merely a generic response to sin and death, but also to the reality of what's facing him in the face when he looks and sees that because I brought life to this dead man, they will then require my life from me. Now, this story, this miracle, has a price. And you see, here is where we find the connection. You see, it was agape love that brought them into their waiting room. 
And it would be his agape love that would bring Jesus into his own. In John 3.16 we read, For God so agape the world that he gave his only son. It was his love that moved him to bring into order these circumstances. It would be his love that would then drive him to his own. You see, he faced a greater darkness. He faced a greater absence. He faced a greater pain when he cried out those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, they didn't choose their waiting room, but he did. And what could motivate him to bear such a weight? Love. A love with no bounds that is determined to love us to our best. Now, some years ago, I was at a conference in which they had one of those speed painters. Have you ever experienced those, this moment where this amazing artist comes and confuses you for a few minutes and then unveils this glorious picture? I mean, sometimes they use glitter and they, tar- they paint black on a black canvas and the last second they throw the glitter and all of a sudden it pops up before your eyes. At other moments, they're painting this thing and you're just sitting there trying to figure out what is going on and the last second they flip it upside down. And all of a sudden, you see this masterpiece. Throughout the process, you're confused in the dark. And it feels as if it is upside down. But then at the last moment, he reveals who he really is. You see, that is what God did for them and to us in this passage. In those moments, we find ourselves in the waiting room. We don't understand what is going on. When we're confused, when we're struggling with that reality, we must understand the truth that our waiting rooms have a point. We might not see them in the moment. We may not see them in the strokes from the master's hand. But when it comes time for him to reveal, you and I will see and experience something beautiful. So you may not understand what he's doing, and you may not get the point. But on this side of the cross, you and I can see glory. The beauty of a love so great that it will stop at nothing to bring you good. A love so great that the only word that fits is glory. This glorious love is the love offered to you right now. In your pain, in your questions, in your fear, in your joy, and even in your anger. Wherever you find yourself, just like Mary, he's calling your name. And the question is, how will you respond? Will you sit and mope in the house, or will you run to him and fall at his feet? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you love us with a love unlike any other. And it's this love that brings us into the waiting rooms of life. It's this love that brought Jesus into his waiting room in which he was forsaken so that we could be accepted. The waiting room in which things went dark that we may have life. The waiting room that ended in his death so that we could live again. And so, Father, we thank you. And, Father, I pray for any in this room who find themselves struggling 
in their own waiting room. For those tempted to close the door between you and them. And Lord, I pray that they too would hear your voice and that they would run to your arms. Father, thank you that it is through your death that we may find life. Lord, we pray that in our darkness we would see your great light. For we ask this in Jesus' name.